You're listening to The Health Classes You Missed. My name is Monica and I'm a secondary school health teacher with a passion for all things health. Whether you're currently at school or you finished 20 years ago, this podcast will help you understand those topics that may have been skimmed over, considered inappropriate or flat out ignored. So sit up straight, faces forward, let's get into it. Just a quick trigger warning, this episode does cover sexual assault. If you or someone that you know needs help or support at any time, call 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. They are available uh, 24-7 or Lifeline, again available 24-7 on 131114. Hello everyone, today we are covering a really important episode. We're going to be discussing the topic of consent and sexual assault. I have the wonderful Anna and Sarah from the Survivor Hub joining me today. They are from an organization that aims to support and empower survivors of sexual assault. In today's episode, we talk about what consent is, what consent is, isn't, what victim blaming looks and sounds like, how we can support survivors of sexual assault and where support is available. So welcome Sarah and Anna. I've got these two here today. Uh, They are both a part of the Survivor Hub uh, that you can find on Instagram. They also have a link tree in their bio. I know you guys do a lot of uh, meetups and you've got a great community um, online, which is amazing. Thank you so much for coming on today. I, uh, I really appreciate you giving up your time to come and talk to me about this very important topic that I think needs to be covered uh, more than it is. And you guys are doing just such amazing things with the Survivor Hub. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you. No worries. So first things first, first question I've got is what is consent? And can you give some examples of when someone might give consent? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the definition, the way we think of consent is an enthusiastic agreement. So to any intimate act. Um, and this is from all parties that are involved. And it's something that has to be freely given. Um, it's reversible. Uh, it, it, it's informed. So you know what you're saying and what you mean by what you're saying. And yeah, we like to think about enthusiastic consent because I think a lot of the time, consent is thought of or treated as like a box that you tick like did I get consent for this cool I'm good to go but it's more about like an ongoing yeah it's a specific agreement and you're showing your enthusiasm for what you're doing I think just to finish your last thought um it needs to be ongoing so it can't just be something that you ask for in the beginning of a sexual or intimate act it needs to be continuous check-in so that could be something like are you enjoying this? Does this feel nice? Is there something else I can do um, that would feel nice? Would you like me to go faster? Would you like me to go slower? Um, Can I kiss you there? Do you like this? That's great um, in terms of, I love that the ongoing and that communication is so important. That's kind of what uh, jumped out at me there is having that really good communication uh, when you are involved in any of those sexual acts. That's yeah, obviously super important. Well, yeah, I think the examples that Anna gave are really good because a lot of the time we think of consent as like a barrier to sex, like it kind of gets in the way, whereas 
I think we really need to start thinking about it as like a part of sex and it's something that can actually make things a lot more enjoyable a lot more fun you know that you and your partners are having a great time like it should honestly be incorporated a lot more and made to be something that you can enjoy because you know that you and everyone partaking are actually enjoying themselves it's not just like getting the go-ahead you know yeah Absolutely. And that, you know, that ongoing, that making sure you're checking in and it's not going to ruin the mood or it's not going to, it shouldn't be viewed like that. It should be viewed as something, as you said, that is always happening. And that is one of those like non-negotiable parts of, you know, being sexually active in any way. And if it ruins the mood, it means that somebody wasn't consenting and that you're forcing something on somebody and they don't want to partake in it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome answer. So could you talk me through some of the things that maybe don't count as consent or what consent isn't? So there are particular groups of people that the law would say um, they can't consent. So if you're under the age of 16 in all states and territories except for South Australia and Tasmania, where it's 17, um, if you're substantially intoxicated or under the influence of drugs, if you're experiencing a disability or you are asleep or unconscious or detained or held against your will, um, if you are, if you think you're consenting but the person that you think you're consenting to is in a position of authority um, or trust, so that could be a teacher, it could be a youth worker, it could be somebody at church, lots of people, a referee, coach, somebody who has a position of authority or or power over you, if you think you're consenting to something, but they do something else. So if you're consenting to sex with a condom, but they take the condom off without telling you, that's not consent because you consented to sex, believing that the person was using a condom. Or if you are forced, scared, intimidated, coerced or threatened. So this is sexual coercion. And if you consent under any of those, then you're not consenting you're being sexually assaulted. And what you mentioned before about um, maybe you don't understand the full scope of what's happening, like you think you're consenting to one thing, but they're not using protection or something like that. That's what we call like informed consent. So you know what you're consenting to. And if someone is uh, lying to you or um, manipulating you in some way into thinking that you're consenting to something um, and using that to do something else, you know, that's not consent you haven't consented to whatever you know they are doing in the situation that you don't know about yeah I think that's super important because I think a lot of people get involved I don't want to say a lot of people but some people might get involved in sexual acts and then like you said maybe not really know what's going on understanding that they have the right to say no you've got the right to change your mind we talk about that at school a lot with like the right to pass so maybe drawing a parallel there is like you have the right for that in any situation, especially sexual ones. If you feel, like you said, maybe uncomfortable or like you're being forced to do something that you didn't originally consent to, knowing that you can change your mind and say no and you don't have to do something just because you originally said yes um, to either something else or even to the thing that you originally uh, gave informed consent for. Yeah, and even if you don't understand why you're feeling uncomfortable or what you want to say no to, that's completely fine too. You don't need a reason to be withdrawing your consent. That, like, That's what it means by ongoing, is that you're freely giving it the entire time. Yeah. So if, if something comes up or you suddenly just 
don't want to do it anymore, you're feeling uncomfortable, that's completely fine. And you're within your rights to just withdraw your consent at any time. Yeah. Perfect. And so uh, I've seen a bit on your Instagram and stuff about consent and coercion. Can you talk to me about the difference between those two? Yeah, for sure. Um, So coercion does fall within the umbrella of sexual assault. So coercion um, occurs when someone agrees to an intimate act under duress or pressure or like Anna was saying, these imbalanced power dynamics. So maybe verbally they say yes but it was forced or it was unwillingly given so maybe it sounds like you're agreeing to something but you're not actually willingly freely giving your consent so yeah it could look like manipulation it could be you're in a relationship with someone and you feel pressured or like if you agree to one thing and then they use that to try and tell you you've agreed to something else yeah and coercion often maybe you feel like you've said yes to something and so that makes you feel pressured to continue with what you've um said but and when you are sexually assaulted due to coercion it might feel like it's not as like big or violent i say those in quotations as sexual assault when people use force but it is it's just as valid it's still sexual assault the Um, impacts on the survivor are the same as if physical force was used it's just as harmful yeah and is something like coercion something that doesn't necessarily have to be I guess in one instance it can be something that's kind of ongoing so like if someone wants to maybe you've got a boyfriend and they are wanting to have sex is that something that like that pressure can happen over quite a long period of time if it, if maybe the person feels like they have to they have to say yes because their partner's been asking for so long is that also coercion yeah 100% uh, just because you're in a relationship with someone does not mean you've consented to do anything with them um so yeah it can look like putting pressure on a partner especially maybe in a marriage you say like that if someone feels as though it's their duty to be performing or receiving any kind of sexual act, um, that is absolutely coercion. And, you know, manipulating your partner into saying like, oh, if you loved me, you would do this. Or, you know, you're my wife, it's your duty to do this. Or, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's absolutely coercion. Yeah. Um, And also from the other side of things, like I think it's important to point out the difference between coercion and then just like what is like seducing someone or foreplay or something that um like gaining consent is not the same as coercing someone um it's just that like in healthy sexual situations you don't need to try and convince someone to have sex with you that's something that happens between both of you and is there's a difference between earning their trust and then getting them to say yes to something I just think that's worth pointing out yeah Yeah, and I feel like this is probably, I mean, it is a very outdated way to look at things and very, uh, like, hetero, but uh, there's that thing of that, you know, boys are always more enthusiastic to have sex than girls, and I think we need to put that out the window as well, that it needs to be the same level of enthusiasm for both parties, I mean, regardless of what what gender or however you identify, uh, it needs to be the same level of enthusiasm. Otherwise, I guess you would say it's a no from one party. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. yeah. 
doesn't matter, you know, your gender, your sexuality, anything like that, any kind of sexual act between two people, um, yeah, has to be agreed on by both of them, anyone involved. Yeah. And yeah, that I think that's a really dangerous assumption that, you know, guys are always in the mood or guys would never say no to sex because it does really undermine the experiences of um, men and a lot of queer people who've, um, yeah, been sexually assaulted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So my next question is, what is victim blaming? I think this is one of those, uh, I guess, uh, those words that people hear a lot about, but maybe don't actually know what that means or what that kind of looks or sounds like. Can you talk on that a little bit? Yeah, I think victim blaming is something that is actually a lot subtler than a lot of people think and can be really insidious um, because it's not just someone saying, oh, it's their fault or like, they asked for it or it happened because of something they did or something they were wearing. A lot of the time it's unintentional. Um, and people tend to insinuate that it's the victim or survivor's responsibility to have done absolutely everything in their power to protect themselves. Like saying things like, oh, were you drunk? Or did you fight back? Did you say no? Or um, putting the onus on the victim to have done something or to do something rather than um, recognising that the perpetrator should not have assaulted someone and the onus is completely on them um, to take responsibility for their actions. Yeah, I guess that kind of comes from that uh, age-old thing of, oh, what what were they wearing? Or those kind of, it seems like those excuses for the people that have assaulted someone and that that shouldn't exist at all it's not the responsibility um of you know someone to to not get assaulted and i guess there's those laws of you know people saying oh you know girls should walk in twos or this or that and like yes maybe that is a harm minimization approach to the situation but you should be addressing the people that are doing the The wrong thing yeah Yeah, which is frustrating isn't it it's Very frustrating. I would like to think that we're going uh, in a better direction with that these days. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and a lot of the time it, it does it doesn't necessarily come from a bad place, um, but it still has the same incredibly invalidating effect on the victim survivor because you know you're just asking them maybe what were you wearing, but to them that's saying well what are the reasons, what are the things you did or could have done, you know what how have you tried to prevent this thing that someone else did to you? And I think um, because of the nature of sexual assault, it's something where um, the victim has their agency taken away and they don't have power in the situation. And then you have these people coming in and asking them, well, how did you use your power? Like, how did you try to stop it? Or what could you have done? And things like that. And it's, yeah, I think incredibly um, invalidating and yeah I was just gonna say that um it also can look like asking too many questions and when I say that I mean trying to determine the exact circumstances and I just wanted to add that you should just be believing your friends survivors family whoever who are you should just be believing them when they tell you what they've experienced because needing more information is really harmful and frankly it shouldn't make you believe them anymore they don't you don't need to know how it happened or exactly 
you know, what time, what were they wearing, what were they doing, have they met this person, it doesn't matter, all they need is the support, and you asking the question forces them to relive it, but it also just is completely irrelevant to their need for support. Yeah, I think it kind of sends the message, even if it's just coming out of a place of curiosity, you're kind of telling them, well, I need you to prove yourself to me. And that is something that a lot of survivors have to go through and is something that's really hard for them. Um, and yeah, the, when they go to the people that they trust and want to disclose something and then all they're met with is questions and the need to try and like prove what's happened or how bad it was and everything. I think that just is a, a bit re-traumatizing. So I guess going off that, how can we both as a community and as individuals, kind of like you've touched on there, if you've got a friend or someone who's come to you who's experienced sexual assault and wants to, uh, you know, talk to you about it or confide in you, how can we better support survivors of sexual assault? Well, huge question. Lots of things that we can do. We had a little think about this before and one of the most important foundational things that you can do from the very beginning is to be informed so to do your research and learn how to appropriately respond to disclosures and there's lots of information out there it's really easy to google and and come up with a um a pamphlet for uh, how to respond to survivors we've also made some posts about it on our instagram at the survivor hub and aside from that i also think that the that you should inform yourself by also learning that survivors can look like anyone. So it doesn't matter, regardless of gender, identity, sexuality, ability, ethnicity, age, religion, any other diversity, they can still be survivors. And the focus on the news might be at the moment quite heavily on cisgendered, straight white women, um, but that's not what all survivors look like. And I think that's really important as well. Yeah, so sharing posts on Instagram that signal to your followers that you're an ally and that you're a safe person and they can speak to you if they need to speak to you and sharing resources like helplines might be really helpful you don't know somebody could be scrolling through Instagram they might see something really triggering and then the might the next thing they see might be something where you've shared about a helpline like full stop Australia or center against sexual assault in Victoria or 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline or any of those other helplines. So I think that it's really important to, to show people that you are a safe person and that you are an ally and that people can come to you if they need help. Yeah, so really opening up, I guess, the conversation and not being, uh, I guess, worried about what people think. If you are posting those, that you know, that's a good thing. That's you're spreading a positive message by... Um, letting other people know because of course you don't I mean we don't know when someone's been sexually assaulted other than them telling us realistically and so if you can even have that impact on someone without knowing it you know it's just as important and I think that that is really important to highlight so thank you for that maybe just adding on to that especially if you're a cis um, male I think that there's a culture of not wanting to talk about sexual assault. And I mean, statistically, cis men are the most likely to perpetrate it. So it's really, really important that if you're, if you're sharing things on Instagram or you're telling your friends that you are a safe person to talk to, that you're an ally, it's so important. There are so many male survivors out there and they are much, much less likely to disclose than 
other survivors. Yeah, that's, yeah, so important. I guess, as you said, for opening up that conversation between, uh, you know, white cis men as well, but also making sure that you're an ally in the way that you're calling out other people if if they're even speaking about it in a way that is disrespectful or antisocial or any of those things and making sure that you're not sitting back and being a bystander I think is is something that again talking about at school that's often a, a bullying term you know not being a bystander uh for bullying and it's it's the same kind of concept when we're talking about, um, you know, that footy club culture or any of those things where historically they're known for being uh, quite disrespectful, particularly to women um, and making sure that you are pulling up your friends or even people that you, you don't know and making sure you say, hey, that's not right and really being uh, an advocate in that way as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're scared, if you're scared of calling people out, we get that as well. And if you do really feel like you can't do it and somebody's making inappropriate jokes, um, either don't respond and just look at them blankly, don't laugh, obviously, or ask them to repeat it. Because if you ask them to repeat it, they'll see once they repeat it, hopefully, how embarrassing it is that they're saying it and how wrong it is that they're saying things like that. So it should make them feel uncomfortable enough to stop saying it, at least in front of you, and then hopefully, more generally, never say it again. I love that. I've heard of that thing of saying, oh, can you just explain that to me? I don't get it. And then once they have to unpack their own really inappropriate joke, like something hopefully, like you said, clicks and they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be making this joke because when I explain it, it doesn't make me sound like a very good person. Exactly. Yep. There we go. All right. Uh, Was there anything else that you wanted to add there? I think that was a fantastic answer. Maybe that there are lots of organisations that you can donate your time or your money to and that there are so many places that you can volunteer at, you can do um, research for them, you can do writing, you can share their message on Instagram, all sorts of things that you can do that don't take much time but then can really have a big real-world impact. Lovely. Yeah. So now I want to just go over... uh, I guess people sometimes talk about gray areas and we talked a little bit about this uh, offline where I was kind of trying to explain what I meant by that. And I had one particular example of a student asking me about uh, if two people are drunk and maybe they wake up the next day, either they don't remember it or maybe they're in one of those situations where they're not sure about the consent between, you know, from them and from the other person. I guess I just want to ask if you kind of have a bit more of an explanation. I know you did say earlier about it being definitely a case-by-case basis, but maybe if you could talk on that a little bit more in terms of when uh, alcohol and other things like that are involved. Mm. I think because this is such a tricky thing to try and unpack and really give a proper answer to. I think that's why it's really important to have a good understanding before going into any of these kind of situations of what consent actually means and whether you think you might find yourself in a situation where either you're not able to consent or you're with someone who's not able to consent. I think um, just having the awareness of what that actually means um, will do a lot to try and um, or to make you think twice before getting into a situation like this. Like if you're worried about maybe I'm going to assault someone because they might be drunk, 
um, just having that awareness in the back of your mind of like, well, if I'm drunk or if they're drunk, we shouldn't be doing this. If this is something that I'm worried about, we can save it for later. If if they really do want to consent to this and are enthusiastic about having sex with me, that's something that we can do when we are sober. Um, and I know maybe to some people that sounds like it's taking the fun out of the situation, but I think you're saving yourself a lot more trouble if you're waiting until you're in a situation where you're both sure that you're able to give consent and are actually um, wanting to be there. Yeah. And I also think it's it's not worth the the risk. And when I say risk, I'm not talking about legal consequences, although they do exist. What I mean is it's not worth doing something that could hurt the other person, that could harm them. And as the example says, they wake up the next morning and they realise that they, they didn't consent to it or they feel like they didn't consent to it. Why put somebody through that? Why not just hold off for one night and have sex with them another day or engage in another intimate act another day with them, as Sarah was just saying? Um, I think that there's no, there doesn't need to be any urgency in things like this. And I think that if you don't know, if it's not clear to you, then it probably isn't consent. Absolutely. I've seen on your uh, Instagram a bit of this, and look, I don't swear on this podcast, but if it's not an F yes, then it's an F no. So I guess using that still as kind of a basis for any of these situations, maybe, and just saying, you know, if it wasn't or if it isn't so clear to me that this is consensual, then you take it as the latter and you say probably not. And like you said, do it another time if you're more comfortable doing it another time. And there, I think there's this thing of, especially in young people sometimes where they feel like in order to do sexual acts, they have to be drunk or they have to, uh, you know, be on some sort of substance. And I think we need to turn far away from that as well. It should not be like that. I've always kind of had that uh, idea of if you're not comfortable enough fully communicating what you want and whether or not you can consent like we talked about earlier you're probably not old enough to be having sex yet and you need to work on that before you go and do that with someone else would you agree with that yeah absolutely this is what we talk about when we say enthusiastic consent it goes both ways it's between you and anyone that you're engaging with so you need to know am I enthusiastic about what I'm really doing or do I just want to get really drunk and have sex so I can say that I had sex that's not enthusiasm for having sex that's wanting to do something to impress people or just to validate yourself in some way that's not actually uh, a healthy way to approach sex so I think yeah you really need to know Am I drunk? Am I able to give enthusiastic consent? Um, and just having a good understanding of that before you go into these situations and really like looking at yourself and thinking, you know, you want to look after yourself too. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you feel like you have to do something because you should want it. You really want to wait and see, is this something I actually want and I'm ready for? Yeah, we talk a lot on Instagram about masturbating and like, go for it. You should learn, you should know your body before um, you're letting other people come and try and get to know your body. I think it's really, really important. And it also reminds people, but particularly, I guess, there's a sort of culture around women. We get told that we shouldn't be or that sex is meant to be a little bit uncomfortable and that it won't always be perfect and pleasurable and, oh, you won't come every time or 
or you won't orgasm every time. But actually, there's no reason why that's that shouldn't be the case. I mean, there, there are medical reasons why that shouldn't be the case, but your sexual partner should be doing everything that they possibly can to make sure that this is an enjoyable and pre- pleasurable experience for you. And you might not know what you like until you've explored your own body. Absolutely. That's, yeah. And I think, like, we all have felt that pressure when we're younger of wanting to have experience just for the sake of having experience. Um, But I think just having an understanding of what sex actually is and what you want from it, because if you're just going into this for, like, oh, I really just want to get laid so I can say that I have you're not making that an enjoyable experience for yourself or for whoever you're doing it with. Um, So, yeah, even though it's easy to just say, wait until you're older, I understand that for a lot of people. They don't want to or they are ready earlier or you just don't really understand when you are ready. But um, there's definitely a big difference between just wanting to do it for the sake of doing it and understanding that you want it and what you want out of it. Yeah, awesome. Great answer. I saw a post on your Instagram that said only 13% of sexual assault survivors actually report it. Can you just talk on maybe why that is? Yeah, so there are so many barriers to reporting sexual assault. Um, It's a very lengthy and re-traumatizing process. It can take years. I know survivors who are eight years in and haven't finished the court process yet. So they reported eight years ago. um, And the average would probably be about three, four years. So it's a very long time. It's very re-traumatizing. And you may not experience justice from it. Um, And I guess it's all about redefining what justice is for you. So whether you're waiting on a guilty conviction or whether you think you want them to go to prison or whatever it may be, that is very, very, very statistically unlikely. So we asked survivors in our community why they didn't report, and there were so many reasons. And I guess some of them, the most common reasons would be fear of how their family would respond, knowing that they're a survivor, knowing that they've experienced it. Cultural reasons, so the police are not a safe space for so many people. And that would be particularly true for First Nations people and also um, people of colour and um, people in the queer community. It's not a safe space for them. Police either don't believe them or they believe them, but they don't follow through their pro- the court process. Or And then there are other reasons. There are things like not realising that it was sexual assault or fear of not being believed by other people or the police and prosecution. You do report, but the police and the prosecution don't go through with your report. They decide not to. And that might not be because you weren't believed. It might just be something based on evidence. It it also court is hard. It's not easy. And it, as I said before, it takes years. Could also be fear of the perpetrator. Could be fear of them coming after you, but it also could be fear of the consequences for the perpetrator. You may think, you know, this happened to me and I want to report it, but I don't want them to go to jail. And that's a very reasonable fear as well. It could be wanting to continue a relationship with the perpetrator. So it might be a family member. It might be somebody you're in a relationship with and you want to continue the relationship with them. And also wanting to move on, wanting to move beyond this part of your life, not wanting to spend the next five years in court 
is another reason why a lot of survivors don't report. Like so many. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's probably just because it's one of those things where it's, again, so individual and just totally depends on a person's prior experiences as well, especially with the law, like you said, and especially if they are First Nations, particularly in Australia when we're talking about that. Um, and that is just a whole other conversation as well, isn't it? So my next one would be, where can people who have experienced sexual assault or sexual assault survivors find support? So there's support. There's lots of different places that you can go to throughout Australia. And we're based in Sydney. So our best advice would be in Sydney. But we've also, we're also about to expand our support groups to Melbourne in about uh, two weeks. In, on the 13th of April. So it's very we'll exciting. Um, <laughs> Love that. So in New South Wales, a well, actually, they're Australia-wide. An Australia-wide support place that you can go to is Full Stop Australia and they're fantastic they provide online counseling you can do phone call counseling you can do in-person counseling you can do text counseling email counseling very good and a lot of their counselors are specifically trauma specialists so they're really good and all they do is survivors so they're not for specific like mental health crisis they're actually for survivors so they know survivors they get survivors they have so many everybody who calls them is a survivor or an ally so you can also call if you're supporting a survivor in victoria i guess specifically would be the center against sexual assault casa and they have locations throughout victoria australia wide there's lots of places you can call there's 1-800-RESPECT there's lifeline there's the blue knot foundation there's lots and lots of different support places and it's very easy to if you google support services for survivors of sexual assault come up also little plug for ourselves um we do host support groups and they're fortnightly in sydney and if you want any information about how to get to the support groups or what they entail or what time or anything like that you can message us on our instagram at the survivor hub or you can join our private Facebook group, which is called The Survivor Hub. You just type in The Survivor Hub and you'll have to answer a few membership questions to get in. And we'll post information about our support groups. They're called Meetups. And we're about to also expand to Melbourne on the 13th of April, but it will be monthly for the beginning anyway. Awesome. I think that's really important where you highlighted as well that, of course, the most important thing is that these numbers are available for people who experience the sexual assault. But also those numbers, you can call them if you're someone who needs help with supporting someone in your life. I feel like sometimes people feel a little bit maybe ashamed of that, particularly if they're a parent or something and they don't really know how uh, to deal with a situation like that. But I think that's super important to highlight too, that those people are there to help you as well. And if you if you need help to, to help someone else, that's great that that is there, um, you know, as a resource as well. And of course, I love the plug for you guys because uh, it's almost as easy as going on your Instagram. I learned so much just from your posts. So going through and taking the time to go on and, and read uh, posts that organizations like you create for that purpose as well. Um, to, to look at and to find the numbers, but also just some tips and stuff to, to help the people in your life as well. Um, super important. And I think you guys are just doing a fantastic job. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
So we've talked about it a little bit in terms of um, going to the police and and the courts and and things like that. I just want to know, I guess it's probably quite a long answer, um, but I guess if you can summarize it in any way, if that's even possible, how do people actually report sexual assault? Yeah, so there are two ways that you can report a sexual assault. There can be formal reporting and there can be informal reporting and you would have to check the state and territory that you're in to make sure that there is an informal reporting option but there is in New South Wales and Queensland and I'm not sure about Victoria um I think probably but I'm not 100% hey guys just want to jump in here real quickly and let you know that there isn't actually any informal reporting available for Victoria we just wanted to confirm that Uh, because when we recorded this, we thought that there was. So I'll just jump in here, let you know. That is why uh, if you're looking for SARO, as mentioned in this episode, the link to all of that information will be in the show notes. Thanks. In New South Wales, it's called SARO, S-A-R-O. It's a sexual assault reporting option. And an informal report, a SARO, in New South Wales is where you go online or into a police station and you write what's happened to you you can choose whether or not you leave your name and your contact details if you do and the perpetrator is reported by somebody else then they will contact you and ask you if you would consider also formally reporting otherwise a sorrow basically is it's very helpful for police data to know where sexual assaults are happening in general sort of perpetrator patterns um but formal reporting it's very different it's a very lengthy process you you go into the police station you can if you feel comfortable you can call up before you can make an appointment you can ask to speak to a female police officer if that's somebody that you feel safer with you get your statement taken and that could take days it could take weeks it could take months it depends on the how the offending occurred it also depends um the length if the offending occurred within the context of a relationship you may you will have to detail all of the relationship from the beginning from when you met until when you last saw them so it can take a very long time and then police will decide whether they do further investigation so that could be cctv evidence that could be interviewing witnesses it could be um forensic exams if it was a recent sexual assault then they'll take they'll ask you if they can take forensic evidence and you would do that in a hospital so after the investigation, um, you'll go to court, and if, in the interests of not speaking for an hour, if you have inf- if you have questions about that, we have lots of resources on our Instagram. We're also about to come out with a pamphlet, a quick summary of what reporting looks like that takes you all the way through to sentencing. So it includes the trial, it includes any pre-trial hearings, it includes. Um, appeals it includes all of those sorts of things about the court process and you can contact us and ask us for that information or you can look at our instagram but it's quite summarized um, information on our instagram and you can also comment in our private facebook group and other survivors who have finished court can answer any questions that you have as well awesome yeah so it is i guess quite a a lengthy process as i uh, kind of imagined it would be in a, even after you talking about it before that's yeah it's a it's a lot to go through especially after 
you know, something like that that can be super traumatic for people. And yeah. um, it's great that those services are out there, like you talked about, if you want to do it anonymously or, um, you know, yeah, if you want to put your name down, I will find the Victoria version and I can um, put that in the show notes as well for people in Victoria. I'll try and find it maybe Australia-wide and, and post a few of those there. But again, you guys do a fantastic job with that too. So making sure all the listeners go and follow the Survivor Hub for, you know, that that information as well. My last and final question for you guys is where can the listeners find you and all the fantastic things that you are doing? So um, we have a Instagram that we post very regularly on. It's called The Survivor Hub, at The Survivor Hub, to search us up. Um, we also are about to start a TikTok called At The Survivor Hub. That'll be an interesting new journey. I love that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and... I think most importantly, our private Facebook group because you can find information about our support groups in there, our meetups, and you can also connect with other survivors and other allies in the Facebook group and ask questions or vent or share or support other people. And it's a really beautiful community in there. There's people are posting every day and connecting with each other and it's it's really beautiful. So we also have meetups we have in-person meetups in sydney and melbourne and we also have zoom meetups on a wednesday evening and they're a much more informal setting they're more about connecting with other survivors and it's more of a social group than it is in the uh, in-person meetups and uh in-person meetups are facilitated uh monitored by a social worker so if there are any concerns if you'd like to step out for a moment if you have any questions that we can't answer from peer experience there is that social worker there to make sure that you're okay and we talk about things like options for therapy we talk about bystanders we talk about our friends and family's responses to being sexually assaulted we talk about being in relationships, having sex after being sexually assaulted, all sorts of topics that survivors themselves nominate when they come to the meetups. And in terms of how to support us, if there are any people who are listening to this podcast and have any skills, we are always looking for volunteers, always, always looking for volunteers. And it could be something as simple as writing Instagram posts. It could be um, research and governance volunteers, not as interesting as Instagram. It could be TikTok volunteers. It could be anything like that. If you have a, any sort of skill and you're interested and you have an hour or two a week, just get in contact with us and, and we can sort something out. That's awesome. Awesome. And I love that, finding people, you know, if you're listening to this and you think, you know, maybe you wanted to help or you, you maybe don't think of yourself as an ally or not really sure what that, you know, you should know what that means after listening, but you want to be more involved and help out a bit more. That's an awesome way to do it. So yeah, really great. I love that, that you, you're reaching for the community because bring more people in and, and making more people aware. It's just so important. Um, well, thank you so much to the both of you for coming on and having a chat with me today. I was looking for a while for someone to talk on this topic and we collaborated on an Instagram post uh, pretty recently. And I just, uh, you know, with your Instagram, with how informative everything is, you guys are just doing an absolutely fantastic job. And I, I thought of you both. Oh, I guess, you know, we didn't know each other yet, but I thought of your company straight away. 
Um, if anyone doesn't follow them, please go follow them at the Survivor Hub. I will put that as well in the show notes as well as a few other things. I think your meetups are really, really important too to, to give people a sense of community around this and make sure that, you know, maybe some people who don't have that support uh, directly in their lives, they've got there are people around and there's people that you can talk to and there's experiences that even maybe if you're not comfortable going to a meetup, joining one of those uh, private Facebook groups and being involved in that way and just even being able to read other people's posts or experiences or uh, tips and strategies or you know helpline numbers, any of that. So important, so important for the younger generation as well to be really, really open about these kinds of things. The reason I made this episode is because we are covering it uh, in length at school soon. I wanted to learn a bit more as well. And, you know, I think that just comes to the point that I'm a health teacher and I'm continuing to continuing, continuing to learn about these things too. So there's, there's never, you know, stopping with it or you know, keep going, keep hearing people's stories, keep giving a voice to the people that, that you should be giving a voice to and that have had these experiences and making sure that you are being an ally at the end of the day. Um, and parents as well, that counts for parents too. It's not just a teacher's responsibility to go and teach your child about that. You should be having that conversation from quite a young age. Um, you know, I yeah, so important. But I just want to say a big, big, big thank you for taking the time to come and chat with me about it it's uh so helpful and i think people will learn a lot from this thank you it's always great knowing that what we're talking about and what we're doing is going to be helpful to people and we really want to reach young people as well it's really important to us so yeah thank you so so much yeah thank you so much for having us on that's okay thanks guys That is all for today's episode. I hope that you feel more informed on the topic of consent. Thank you for getting to the end of this episode as well. I think that this is one of the most important topics that we have covered so far. It's just so super important to be educated on these kinds of topics and I'm stoked to be able to teach them to you on this podcast as well as at my school. If you want to support this podcast, please click that follow button wherever you are listening. That really helps me out. And if you want to stay up to date with me, I am at the health classes you missed on Instagram or at thcym underscore podcast on TikTok. Have a great day, stay safe, and I'll be back in your ears very soon. See you later.